Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We want to remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Jared W., Paul M., Luke A., and Andy J. Derek Iwanaka is our guest today. Derek is the Vice President, Corporate Development and Investor Relations for B-Metals Corp., a base metal-focused company that is currently with projects at various stages in Idaho, the United States, and in Zambia, Africa. B-Metals is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol B-M-E-T. Derek, thank you for coming on our show. Andrew, thank you very much for having me on the show, and I, I have my favorite beverage right next to me, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Derek, I want to start out. Uh, can you tell the audience about your background in this business and why you ended up working with the team at B-Metals? Sure. Uh, it, it was actually pretty serendipitous uh, how I got started, but uh, my first job essentially at a university was helping a company move offices, and that company happened to be uh, a little junior mining company called Bima Gold Corporation. At the time, it was pretty small. It had one operating mine, and I think they only had about maybe 500 employees at the time. Um, it was producing somewhere around 100,000 ounces of gold. The stock was around $1.49 Canadian, and that was in 2002. And uh, from there, it kind of went into a, a bit of a boom, and gold mining went up, and gold stocks went up, and uh, eventually, in 2006, uh, they got a buyout offer from Kinross Gold, and uh, that mining company went from a one producing asset to a three producing asset company and was bought out for three and a half billion dollars uh, whether it was US or Canadian it was almost the same at that point because I think the dollar was near par um, so that that was my first experience and exposure to the mining industry and um, I went from just helping that company move offices to joining their investor relations department and stayed there for about three and a half years uh, before I was taken over and uh, went on to a nickel producer, which was operating down in Western Australia. And that company was essentially bought out by Panoramic Resources. And it's funny, I mean, I, I always wanted to stick with one company and grow with it, and um, just never happened. Um, BMO was taken out. Brilliant was taken out. I then thought, oh, let's let's go to the uranium sector, which is something that I, I quite like. And um, uh, did about five and a half years at Uranus Energy Corporation. It was a U.S.-based producer, uh, ISR, uranium producer in Wyoming. And uh, did that for about five and a half years before it was bought out by Energy Fuels. And so it was three for three of companies being bought out. And, and um, I was approached by the team at First Mining Gold, which at the time was First Mining Finance. And it's headed by Keith Newmar from First Majestic Silver. And uh, they wanted to go into the business of make, or taking advantage of a really tough bear market, which doesn't feel too different right now. But in 2015 was a, kind of a perfect time 
to be acquiring assets in the uh, the mining business. And so we went after gold assets, particularly in Canada, and ended up doing eight transactions and, and accumulating about 12 million ounces of gold there. And um, uh, just strangely enough, um, in 2018, kind of late 2018, I got a call from Clive Johnson, and uh, he's the CEO of B2 Gold. And he said, hey, Derek, I'm, I'm starting up a new mining company. It's going to be base metals focus. We want to do essentially replicate what we've done at B2 Gold, but in the base metals sector. And I said, how do I get involved? So um, in October of last year, I got started. I've been with the company since and, and was an employee number two. We've now made two acquisitions, and as, as you pointed out, we have a project in Zambia, which is copper exploration, and then we have a development project that is down in Idaho, and that kind of brings us up to today. Well, excellent. I like that, and it sounds like the experience in the sector was really self-built over your, your run with these different companies that you mentioned. And was there any time uh, during this, uh, so B2 was around, uh, were you involved with B2 while you were going around uh, throughout your different ventures? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to participate in the one of the seed round financings at 40 cents. And uh, the stock obviously did quite well uh, from the IPO and then continued to go onwards, upwards. And uh, so I, I've stayed in touch. Um, my first mentor in the business was Ian McLean who's the VP of Investor Relations at B2 Gold and was formerly the VP of Investor Relations at uh, Bima Gold. And so um, we've we've kept that close contact and, and he was really uh, the guy who taught me the business. Now you mentioned uranium um, and I saw that uh, in your in your bio there. I wanna mention that now that you brought it up. Uh, what is your position on where uranium is today and what is your position on nuclear power? Well, I'm a pretty stubborn person, so I, I've I've uh, stuck with nuclear power. I, I know the benefits of it being in the industry and meeting the people and the scientists, the geologists, the engineers that are involved, um, the traders. I've, I've met all kind of facets of the business, and I am still supportive, even though I'm not in the uranium business anymore. But um, it's, uh, I mean, I guess I have a pretty strong connection with my Japanese heritage and, and going to Japan and, and seeing firsthand kind of devastation from, from Fukushima, but also the benefits of nuclear power, which I think a lot of people do see, but it, it, it's it's really difficult in Japan right now, um, getting the people on board, I think the general public on board, it seems to slowly be coming along, but uh, it's taken, what, it's now eight years since the Fukushima incident and uh, as I think we were talking just before the interview started, I think they only got about nine reactors now either restarted or approved for restart and out of some maybe some 40 odd uh, reactors in total, you know, maybe they're going to get about half of those restarted after it's all said and done. But uh, it's definitely taken a lot longer and I think it will come, but uh, it's it's certainly taking more time. Certainly, and the, the the perception is always interesting. Whether you have uh, a natural gas pipeline that explodes somewhere, or a, a rail transporting oil that goes off the rails uh, up in Canada and wipes wipes people out, or you have a, mm -hmm. a software glitch on a 737 Max, which which uh, causes problems as as we've seen, and yet uh, Fukushima somehow is tied with a nuclear reactor that melted down. 
and then there's no mention anymore of the of the tsunami waves that killed tens of thousands and uh it's mm -hmm. really interesting how these things kind of get swept under the rug as far as i know not one person has died as a result of radiation or, or any of the effects from fukushima but yeah as you mentioned thousands of people went missing or died uh from the tsunami so um it's it's unfortunate that that kind of took the focus from that incident at least i guess around the world anyways but um yeah the devastation from the earthquake and the, and the tsunami itself were actually much more substantial in my opinion yes absolutely so derek what are your thoughts on this market for natural resource equities and specifically the base metal part of the business uh, kind of depends who you talk to. If you're talking to the senior producers, they seem to be, for the most part, okay. Um, if you talk to the junior companies, especially the explorers, it's it's very difficult um, in the capital markets sector. Raising money has not been uh, easy, and we're fortunate enough to have a really strong board of directors. And uh, we just closed the financing about a month ago now for six and a quarter million Canadian dollars and uh, it was oversubscribed and we actually had to cut some people back so we're in a pretty fortunate position uh, and we are well positioned right now to actually start up uh, two drill programs one of which has already started as of last week so derek what about uh, what metals are you specifically liking in the market today that will likely surprise over the next one to two years uh copper is is definitely i guess our favorite metal right now um but uh, zinc is is the the primary metal for our development stage project, which is down in Idaho. It's our um, it's our flagship asset, and it's something that we want to develop and hopefully put into production within the next few years. So uh, it is zinc focus, which um, has been kind of a turbulent uh, metal, but uh, I think overall the, the demand is going to continue to grow, and uh, from the supply side. Well, in, in our opinion, hopefully it's going to decrease, but it, it has been, um, I guess, kind of flatlined more or less, and uh, we do see the demand growing, so it, it, it should lead to a higher price. And if you look at the stockpiles, for the most part, uh, for the last couple of years, it has most definitely been on the decreasing side. Right, and, and let's let's talk about that for just a moment. Uh, because the zinc, the zinc component of, of B metals is interesting, and and where you guys see that going, and, and your position in Idaho, give us some specifics on what you see happening with the zinc demand side, the improvements there, and then also can you give us some insights on what is going on regarding the supply side and the shortages that are appear to be coming? Yeah, I think a lot of it has been driven on the demand side. Um, there, there's been much more demand because of uh, electric vehicles, um, renewable energy sources. You, you, you'll see that um, pretty much from, I would say, 2013 or so, uh, you've seen a pretty large decline of stockpiles in the LME. And um, it went from about 1,000 tons uh, for in 2013 down to almost zero. I mean, it's down to about 100 tons uh, as of this year. So the stockpiles have, have dropped dramatically. There hasn't been uh, a huge surge in the uh, supply for on from the mining side anyways. And so that has, for the most part, resulted in a, a higher zinc price. Yeah, very interesting. I'm I, uh, starting to see how that's going to 
work out incredibly well for companies who are positioned properly for zinc. And I know that there's been some some discussion and some work done on on using zinc as a soil supplement to help replenish uh, some of the depleted soils on the agriculture side. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that progresses. Uh, why wasn't the base metal focus not done over at B2 Gold? What's what was the thought process when management set up this separate company? So B2 wanted to be leveraged to the gold price specifically, and uh, it, it's done exactly that. If you if you look at the correlation between the gold price and the stock price for B2, it, it is pretty close. Um, so they uh, they've always had that view, and so I think they wanted to be a, a pure play gold company. Uh, so not to mix with a base metals company. So, um, but there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to replicate some of the success that they've had um, in terms of developing, well, exploring, developing, and then eventually operating uh, assets in the base metals side. So um, it, it's an interesting story why the company got started because uh, the senior VP of exploration, Tom Garrigan, as the as a larger company, in, especially in Vancouver they get a lot of deal flow. A lot of ideas get thrown their way. Um, a lot of those, of course, are precious metals related, but inherently there's always some base metals uh, assets that come their way and cross their desk. And so um, for a number of years, Tom had seen these projects come along and, and they, unfortunately they just weren't able to touch them since they were so focused on, on the gold uh, that eventually they thought, you know, it's time that we, we create a uh, vehicle to capitalize on all this deal flow. And so that's the, the genesis of why B-Metals was actually started uh, about a year ago now. Well, let's get into B-Metals. I want to start with the structure and management. Who are the key people at B-Metals at the board and management level? And then also, who are the notable shareholders on the roster? Uh, Clive Johnson is our uh, is the director. I, I would say he's almost like the chairman, but he is a director, and um, he is uh, one of the largest shareholders uh, of the company. So he has just under 10% of the the shares outstanding right now. So he's one of the major shareholders. Uh, Tom Garrigan, as I said, senior VP of Exploration at uh, at B2 Gold. He's also one of the the founding directors and um, is quite instrumental in the company with regards to taking a look at assets and uh, figuring out the expiration potential for them. So he's also one of the major shareholders. Roger Riche uh, is uh, also with B2 Gold as an executive there and uh, is a, a major shareholder and is also very supportive of, of the, the board. And then uh, John Wilton, who is a geologist formerly with Antofagasta, so a lot of copper experience, and particularly he has a lot of experience in Africa. And uh, so he is on the board and he's the CEO. And uh, then there's Christian Reinertsen, who's our, our CFO, corporate secretary, and also a director. So everybody in the company is a shareholder, and um, it's quite largely uh, internally held. But if you include kind of friends and family, we're looking at oh, well over 50% of the company is, is held by either insiders or friends and family of insiders. We have just one institutional uh, shareholder at the moment, and then the rest of it is really retail held. Um, there are a number of, of brokers and clients uh, that hold the stock at Haywood, but for the most part, it is pretty widely held. 
Okay, and the institutional, can you share that with us, uh, the name, or is that uh, off limits? Never really been named officially, so I, I won't give you the name, but it is European-based. Uh, sounds good. Uh, can you give us the shares currently out, uh, cash on hand? Uh, I know you just did a raise, and then, of course, uh, what you expect that depletion rate of that cash will be. Currently, it's about 105 million shares outstanding, and that's post our most recent financing and also post the uh, acquisition of the Idaho property, um, which it did. we had to issue some shares to, to acquire that. Um, as of the end of the, the last quarter, which would have been March 31st, we had about $300,000 Canadian, and then we closed the um, raise of six and a quarter million dollars about a month ago now. So um, cash right now is probably sitting somewhere around between four and $5 million. We had some, some payables that we had to pay with um, related to the transaction. We have enough money to see all the programs go through for this year, as well as our marketing and overhead. So we're good until at least the end of the year. And preservation of the capital structure while creating value and alignment with company owners. How does management approach these efforts? So we're actually very careful about that. As I said, when we were doing the, the financing, it was oversubscribed. Originally, we were only trying to raise $5 million and we got about $7 million in orders, which is testament, I think, to the company, considering most companies are just struggling to get any financing done at all just to keep the lights on. So we we did try to limit it. So we, we cut it down to six and a quarter million dollars. That was to manage the dilution at such a low price. I mean, at 25 cents, which which is where the, the financing was at, um, we think that's like a almost like a seed round financing at that price. So. Um, very low, low priced, and uh, so therefore we, we really want to keep that under control. Hopefully the next round will be at a higher price considering we do have two ongoing drill programs. And so the, the thought is that if things go well um, at either or both of those projects during the drill programs that uh, you know, we can raise some money at a, a higher price. So tell us a bit more about uh, Clive Johnson. How involved with the company is he? And for the audience that does not know Clive, can you share with share with us the importance of having him around? So Clive is uh, kind of like a legend, I guess, certainly in Vancouver, if not in the industry itself. I mean, he's been doing this for geez, over 30 years now, I think. And um, he's taken Bima Gold from a, a tiny company that was just a junior explorer, uh, took it up to a... Uh, a, a fairly large producer anyways intermediate producer and uh, like I said it was bought out by Kinross for about three and a half billion dollars and um, people said that it couldn't be done again uh, 2006 2007 end of 2007 they decided to basically get the team they uh, put the band back together again and try this over again and in about 12 years now it's well B2 gold has now become uh, just under a million ounce per year producer of gold. Their market cap has surpassed what it was bought out for. It's around $4 billion now Canadian. So it only took them about 12 years uh, to replicate and exceed where they were at at, uh, at Bima Gold. So he's had a lot of success. He's raised geez, uh, over $2 billion now in, in the markets, whether that be equity or, um, or debt. So he's a terrific guy, um, but also he's, uh, brought along a, a huge team, and um, 
that team has been with him for decades. Uh, literally, when I left BEMA and came back to B-Metals, um, all, almost all the same faces were still there. And so that, I think, is pretty testament to him, um, a guy that people can work with, and uh, he's a great leader and has attracted a great team around him that uh, that support him and have done it all over again. So the most important thing that I see with Clive is he's been able to attract great talent and, and loyal people. And would you say right now with, with uh, his ongoing duties and so forth over at B2 Gold, would you say that the bulk of his time is, is really uh, with B2 and B Metals at this point? B2 Gold for sure is, is the, the, the focal point for him. Um, Kind of on the side, he does help out with B Metals, and uh, my office is actually on the same floor as B B2, so it's it's good that I have access when I need it. But um, he's, you know, I don't know what percent, but I would say, the by far the majority of the time is it's spent with with B2 Gold. Okay, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with. Uh... With B2, it's in a unique uh, position now where it is and, and uh, in the market and some of the consolidation that we're starting to see with some of the majors. Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, really how long B2 uh, hangs around as far as uh, other companies looking at it. Uh, mm -hmm. with, with that, uh, you mentioned on the same floor, with the company being so close with uh, B2 Gold, what backing is B2 Gold providing to help support B Metals? So we're pretty careful about this. Uh, B2 Gold uh, doesn't own any portion of uh, B, B Metals, um, so there's no cross shareholdings in, in that respect. But uh, in terms of the people behind B2 Gold, in, in terms of the executives and some of the employees at uh, B2, they are very supportive, and, and so that's where we really get the get the help, um, both from well from marketing, technical basis. Um, we get a lot of support from from that side of things, but uh, in in terms of the the share ownership, we we have to really be careful. It's it's not B3, although you could almost say it's like that. Uh, but it's not a B3. This is a base metals focused company that is um, really completely separate from B2. Although we do want to replicate that same success. Right. Well, tell us about the projects at P-Metals and what the objectives are for these projects. And if you would, let's start with South Mountain Zinc. Uh, we took, well, when, when we started up the company, we the, the qualifying transaction was the uh, Pangeni Copper Exploration Project in Zambia. And that kind of got us off the ground. And um, But the, the main focus has always been to become a producer and so we wanted to find a development stage project and uh, when I started the the goal was to find a at least something that's uh, advanced stage development or possibly in production stage asset in base metals we uh, looked at probably about 35 projects in hmm, about three months we uh, visited, I think, six of those projects, and um, out of those, we put out offers on three. And for a couple of reasons, you know, two two of those assets did not uh, end up working out. One of them was was for technical. Actually, two of them were for technical reasons. And um, fortunately for the for us, this one rose to the top and was uh, we were able to 
strike a deal with uh, the management of, of Thunder Mountain Gold kind of late last year and uh, announced the deal in February. And so that got us our development stage asset. And on South Mountain Zinc, can you give us just a little bit of a flavor for what that, that kind of CapEx, a ballpark of what that CapEx really looks like? And then also give us a little bit on the permit status and the key community support. Sure. So I- internally, we, we had to put a model together. So this is not 43101 compliant, but we, we took a look at the, the project, um, put together our own model. We think that the CapEx would be quite modest, certainly sub $100 million, um, hopefully below $60 million. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's, it is a past mining um, project, so there, there is still underground uh, workings in place. There is still a road that goes up to the project. Um, there's also uh, something that we don't talk about much, which is uh, there's a, a mill facility that's actually fairly close to the mine that has a bunch of equipment sitting on the ground that uh, a lot of that could quite likely be used um, to, to construct a, a mill. Um, so a lot of the, the infrastructure is already in place, uh, so that keeps the capex low, and also it's it is a very high-grade mine, one of the highest-grade projects in all of North America. Um, it's over 10% if you look at just the zinc, and if you look at uh, from a zinc equivalent basis, it's looking at over 17%. So um, very high-grade asset, but also just because it is quite tight, I think it's going to be quite low capex. Um, I won't really get into more specifics about the economics of it, just because we have our own model, but it's not 43101 compliance, so we can't really get into um, into the details of that part. And how about the permit status and uh, key community support? Yeah, so so far we've retained the, the services of uh, three key personnel from Thunder Mountain Gold, and so they, they have uh, a lot of connections with the, the local government and also the local communities. Um, the actual, I would say the closest actual local community really is in Oregon, in Jordan Valley. Um, so that they've, they've, well, I haven't been down there yet, but our CEO was down there uh, earlier this year. And from what I understand, uh, the people were all asking him, when are you going to get started over there? So um, it seems as though, uh, at least from that basis, that people are quite supportive in the most, in the closest town. From what we can see, the Idaho government is is quite supportive, and there's um, Idaho Mining Association that is also very supportive of mining down there. So um, there are a number of neighbors that are also um, in mining, and uh, they seem to be doing quite well. So we we definitely see the support there from from the state level and also from the local community level, and from permitting. Uh, all the the known mineralization is on patented ground, so it it should be very straightforward in terms of permitting. Okay, and you don't see you don't foresee any uh, roadblock issues with uh, getting any of the permits there, given given the status. Well, if of you have BLM ground, or if you have any legacy issues with a past mining operation, then that definitely would slow you down. But in our case, it's an underground mining or was an underground mining operation and, and foreseeably will be become another one. So there there are no uh, liabilities or obligations that are remaining. Uh, those have been taken care of. There was some remediation that was, was done. Um, 
we don't have any BLM ground, so it's not state or, or federal ground. Uh, so the permitting should be relatively straightforward and is pretty much as, as straightforward as it can get. Let's move over to uh, the copper project in Zambia. This is a favorite of our CEO. So our CEO, as I said, was, was formerly with Antipagasta, and uh, he was the head of all exploration projects in Africa for Antipagasta. And in uh, 2015, they did do some drilling there and um, did a few, the, the first of, of the only actually holes, uh, diamond drill holes that were done uh, on the project. And each one of those hit into uh, copper, um, low low kind of grades, not, not ore grades, but each one of those holes intercepted copper anomalies. And um, unfortunately, the uh, Antipagasta decided to pull out right at that time, decided to pull out of uh, all operations outside of South America and, and really just kind of retrenched into Chile. And so um, they they pulled out and um, the joint venture partner there uh, wanted to continue on and John uh, really thought that the project had great potential. So he stayed on with the project with that joint venture company and uh, in 2000 and I guess it was end of 2017, approached Tom Garrigan and asked if uh, B2 Gold would be interested in, in this project. And as it turns out, that's kind of when they were trying to get uh, B Metal started. And so um, this project ended becoming our qualifying transaction, got us our, our listing on the TSX venture. And it's it's in elephant country, so it's it's right on the Zambian copper belt. It's on the western side of it, and where there hasn't been a lot of exploration to date, but um, it's under a very thin uh, layer of sand cover. Which, you, you if you know, say Nevada, where you have gravel cover, or other areas where you have um, cover like in Nibia, you will have calcrete cover. In this case, is just a thin layer of of sand cover, which makes it very difficult to see any outcrop and um, so it's difficult for companies just to to walk around and, and and pick stuff up you actually have to drill and so there's um, a great method that, that we use it's called air core drilling and, and uh, we did a number of drill holes last year uh, about 113 holes and uh, that gave us um, the information that we needed to vector in on three targets which we we just started drilling one of them last week. What are the uh, plans uh, for both projects uh, over the next 12 to 18 months? And uh, what do you expect to accomplish? And then specifically on the zinc side, uh, kind of just give us a, an overview of the of the total time you guys expect uh, to kind of bring that uh, project uh, to a, at least to a construction decision. Everything is going to be really results um, driven, but uh, from the Zambia side, since we're talking about it already, um, we're we're planning to spend about a million dollars there. Uh, we'll do approximately six to seven drill holes on three targets. That should give us a pretty good indication of whether we have something. Um, you know, all, all along the the eastern side of the belt, and also where kind of the central part where uh, Ivanhoe has had uh, huge success with their Kamoa and Kakula project. Um, not a lot of huge discoveries have been made on the western side, but if you were to make a discovery um, in this type of setting, uh, it, it would be monumental for us. So that's kind of the blue sky. Um, exploration 
and uh, we want to carry on to kind of in, in tradition of, of BEMA because BEMA discovered uh, the Kupel project, which ended up becoming a, a multi-million ounce discovery. Um, so we're, we're trying to do something like that uh, here in Zambia, but at the same time, we want to offset that or, or down, I guess, offset some of the risk with having a, a, a more developed project, which is in Idaho. And uh, for that project, we're looking to spend about $2.3 million US, so close to $3 million Canadian. Uh, that will get us about 2,500 meters of drilling, all from underground, so we're not doing surface drilling. And uh, that should hopefully expand the resource and, and will give us a, a really strong indication of whether we really have a, a larger resource there. Right now, it is a pretty small or modest resource um, in terms of being 43-101 compliant, but um, historically, there was a much larger resource, uh, probably about five times what that is. So we think with the this drill program, we can increase the resource size and then push that project forward. So for Idaho, we're looking at this year's program. Next year, we'll look at doing, um, uh, assuming the results are good, we, we would look to do a, a further program of about 5,000 meters of drilling next year and then push that to a preliminary economic assessment stage. From there, we would decide whether we want to go into full construction um, or whether we want to go to either a pre-feasibility or feasibility study. So the outlook for that is, I'd say, at least two years anyways um, to get us up to a PEA and then possibly a construction decision. And then in Zambia, really, that could changed almost overnight. I mean, if we hit one good intercept, uh, that could kind of change things really dramatically for us. But as I said, we're, we're doing six holes. We'll, we'll see how, or six to seven holes uh, this summer, and we'll see how, how it goes from there. No, it's great. You got you to gotta start the start of a diverse set of assets, uh, one asset more advanced than the other. Uh, so it's certainly a good setup going. Um, on jurisdictions, what other places on the globe is B-Metals evaluating opportunities? Uh, that's an interesting question. So it, it, it comes up quite often. Um, you know, we kind of take the page out of the, the, the B2 playbook, and, and they've never been discouraged um, from going into almost any jurisdiction. I mean, as you know, they're, they're operating in Nicaragua, Mali. Um, they have exploration ongoing in Burkina Faso. They have an ongoing project in Namibia and uh, in Philippines. So um, they're able to operate almost anywhere and we don't see any reason why we can't do the same thing. I think if you treat people honestly and fairly in, in those countries or anywhere in the world, um, that you can do things uh, successfully. And, and you know, BIMA did that in Russia where uh, people said, there's no chance you're going to be able to do this. The the Russians will come in and, and take that project away from you if, if it ends up being successful, and that's absolutely not the case. And uh, eventually, Ken Ross took it over, and Ken Ross is still operating the Kupel mine today. Right. Uh, so no no jurisdictional preference, I guess you, you could say. I think um, as long as the project merits it, if it has the, the right economics and the, the potential, then we would look at it. When it comes to Africa, do you uh, see Namibia as kind of really the good old steady? And I know B2 Gold likes it. Uh, is that a place that's certainly high on the list for Africa? Uh, interesting story. Uh, our CEO, uh, John Wilton, so he, he actually was the principal geologist there when they made the discovery of Ojikoto back in the 90s. 
and um, and that was actually the first connection between him and really what eventually became B2 Gold. So he um, he d- discovered that project uh, with his team, and uh, he he loves Namibia. I'm sure that he'd be very happy to go back to Namibia um, to do some work there. But um, kind of uh, I think South South Africa in general, he he's very familiar with. So we have that. Um, edge, I guess, especially from a Canadian company standpoint. Okay. And I want to move on to the end strategy for B metals. Are you really looking to kind of delineate a solid set of projects that uh, could turn into a sellout or is there really a goal uh, to copy the B2 gold model exact on the base metal side? Yeah. So we do want to be, the, the goal is to become a producer and uh, do it incrementally. So we want to start with a a development stage project and uh, develop that and put it into production on a small scale, but then that would help us, give us the platform to take on new assets, get that um, experience under our belt in terms of operating a mine and then moving on to the next one. Um, We probably can do things uh, a little bit maybe maybe not necessarily faster, but I think that because we, we have the experience of, of all the B2 guys that um, we could find potentially a producing asset uh, in the and add that to the fold. So that would obviously leapfrog things. But um, we, we just want to build it uh, for at this stage. We just want to build it incrementally, start with a, a development stage asset, take that into production. Um, concurrently, we also want to do tier one expiration. And so this the, the, the Pangeni project gives us that opportunity to do that. If we can find uh, other expiration properties um, that have huge uh, expiration potential, then we would, I mean, we're looking at those as well. But um, getting into production is kind of the one of the, the highest priorities that we have right now, and then growing out from there. Absolutely. No, I think it's a interesting setup. So, Derek, why should investors, uh, potential investors that are listening, be considering B metals? What would you say to them? Um, you've you've probably heard this so many times. It, it all it has to do with the people. I mean, bad people can ruin great projects, and conversely, sometimes uh, great people can make even, uh, I guess, uh, mediocre projects into decent projects at least if you have the right team. And I think uh, B2 has demonstrated that time and time again. They've put multiple mines of production uh, all over the world in very challenging, or what is perceived to be very challenging jurisdictions. Um, so that's exactly what we want to do. I think that's a, a huge differentiation that we have. Having Clive Johnson uh, involved and Tom Garrigan, um, whether it be technical advice, whether it be uh, connections on the finance side of things. I mean, not not too many companies have raised billions of dollars, and um, so if we need, I think, um, funds to to get into construction and production, uh, if anybody has those connections, we should. So um, I think that that is a, a huge um, advantage that we have over most typical companies and. If you just look at our most recent financing, I think we we already demonstrated that on a small scale, but uh, can't wait to do that on a larger scale. And how can our audience reach out to the company for more information? 
you can go to the company website if you like. It's uh, bmetalscorp.com, but uh, anybody can reach me as well at, at 604-609-6141 or, or just at info at bmetalscorp.com. We also have social media feeds, and so if you go to the website, you can check out those feeds as well. Okay. Well, Derek, we appreciate you taking the time today, and good luck over at B Metals. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on.